Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. When all is said and done, who goes to heaven exactly? There's part of me that hopes it's everybody, um, but it, there's that passage about, you know, narrow is the path, and but I suppose that makes me think that a lot less people than we think will get to heaven. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. At the end of the day, you don't really know until you die. I don't have any authority to answer this, and I believe only God decides. My favorite answer, though, was from a theology class I took at my Jesuit college, where the instructor suggested that several modern theologians thought that those who believe in and follow what they called the way of Christ can be saved. Who do you think goes to heaven? People that are Christians and believe in God and worship Him. What does Jesus say? Um... A pastor, I should know this. <laughs> oh, I'm paraphrasing because my brain isn't working, but those who believe, <laughs> confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. That's what I was thinking of. Sorry. Do you think that there will be non Christians in heaven? There are people who believe better than words could say. And depending on how you define the passage that talks about the sheep not of this fold, yes. Uh, I certainly think that if God is just. Um, that he will take your environment that you grew up in and uh, take into account your heart. If there is a heaven, if there is criteria to get into it, uh, I certainly think that there should be non-Christians in there, if, even if there isn't. We as humans want to know what's in and what's out. Can someone get to heaven who is not a Christian? Probably so. You know, if God's, quote-unquote, the bouncer to the party, why not? I think of Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest thou be judged. That we can say whether or not we agree with someone or think what they did was right or wrong. The one thing that we cannot do, though, is determine whether or not they're saved or whether or not they're going to heaven or hell. And so for me, I reserve judgment on those things, um, ultimately because it's not my place to decide or to say. Can someone be saved by Jesus Christ even if they've never heard or read the name Jesus? Definitely. I don't think you necessarily need to hear or know the story of Jesus. You just need to just know it. Maybe not by that name. Maybe. Let's get to this.
<laughs> yeah, I am being slippery. There are people, I believe, that are saved us through flames, that God is just and fair, and there would be those who believe in Christ but may not understand fully, like the thief on the cross. I mean, it's a very simple, short interchange. I think that would be an example of the kinds of people that may not be called Christians, and yet today he's with Jesus in paradise. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Here's a question I've heard and I've thought many times myself. Do I have to believe that the billions of human beings who have lived and died and did not become Christians are all sent to hell simply because they did not become Christians while they were alive? If the traditional view of hell is accurate, then that particular place is massively packed with billions of suffering souls. And so this question is very much worth thinking about, seems to me. But in order to have this conversation, I need to contrast two views, Christian exclusivism and Christian inclusivism. The Christian exclusivist, assuming that he or she believes in hell, has to answer to this question, yes, you have to believe this. Billions of people are suffering in hell. I know it's a rough thought, but you got to just trust that it's all part of God's plan. The Christian inclusivist answers, no, you need not believe this. God can save anyone God wants to save through the work of Jesus, even if that person has no knowledge or an incomplete knowledge of Jesus. Now, a couple of clarifications. Christian inclusivism is not the same thing as Christian universalism. Christian universalism or universal salvation is the claim that Christ's work on the cross will eventually cover every human sin no matter what and that in the end, God's love will in fact win over every soul. Christian universalism is not what we're talking about today. We'll almost definitely do an episode about it eventually, but not for a little while. Number two, inclusivism is also not the same as some kind of basic religious pluralism, which says that all religions are equally good paths to God. Whatever is good for you is fine. Number three, inclusivism does not remove the need to evangelize. Just because God can save anyone God wants to save, that does not mean that knowing Christ is a meaningless addition. In fact, knowing God through Christ is arguably the most important thing one could possibly know, and it would be the most effective driving factor for someone accepting Christ's work on their behalf. Lastly, inclusivism does not neuter God's ability to bring justice or to punish sin. 
An inclusivist might, for instance, believe that many people are not, in fact, saved, either through their own consistent willful rejection of God or for any other reason. Even if an inclusivist is also a universalist and believes that eventually God will save everyone, she might also believe that sin will be punished in some meaningful way before that salvation is brought about. In other words, God may indeed punish sins even if he saves people who are not Christians. So there's not a justice issue necessarily. Now, if some people of other faith traditions are saved, on Christian inclusivism, they're not saved through their faith traditions, through being a good Muslim or being a good Buddhist or whatever. They're saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Another similar way of saying this is that some people of other faiths are saved through God's grace and love, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus show us the God who does that saving. This is what I mean by Christian inclusivism. There are many famous inclusivists in Christian history. One who we're going to hear about later is John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. But first, we're going to hear from Michael Ward, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar. And C.S. Lewis is arguably the most influential thinker on modern evangelicalism, the type of Christianity in which I was raised. So this is where we're going first. Here's me with Michael. Before we get into any questions about inclusivism or, or the like, can you just give us a basic overview of how Lewis thought of salvation? What was his basic view on that? <laughs> That's a nice small question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fundamental point of salvation is is being known by God in Christ and responding to that knowledge uh, uh, in in love and faith. Now that definition is a little different than maybe you could imagine uh, some other Christian answering that question. Something like. It is the uh, volitional accepting of Christ's atoning blood or something like that. And anyone who accepts that is good. Anyone who doesn't is not good. Well, I think that description that you've just given is, is not necessarily a, a wrong or a bad description. It's just uh, it doesn't apply across the board because, you know, if, if we're talking about salvation, it's got to, it's got to be a, a, a definition which applies in all cases. But knowing particular doctrines and accepting them volitionally uh, wouldn't, for instance, cover uh, a babe in arms or a, a mentally disabled person. Can they therefore not be saved? So that's why I put it in these more general terms, that, it, that salvation is about being known by God and responding to that knowledge in love and faith. Uh, so there, there may be doctrinal content to that response, of course, and in most cases there is in in adult believers, um, but obviously not in certain cases. Yeah, and you could even just from from scripture add a few more examples. There are multiple examples of entire households being saved, both in Jesus's time and in Acts, and you know it's 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 arguable what the thief on the cross really propositionally believed about Jesus you know, yeah. before his death and resurrection, etc. Good point. Yep. So for Lewis, to whom could salvation extend? Is it only people who, by the time of their death, espouse 
consciously the Christian faith, or might it go further? Uh, it definitely, in his view, goes a good deal further. Let me quote you a, a line from Mere Christianity, which is, is often overlooked. I, I haven't known people talk much about this, but it's quite an interesting little focal point for our discussion, where he, he says, uh, here is another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life of faith should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. Yeah, the way that I uh, often describe that to people is, you know, the old um, chasm between God and man, and then the the bridge is cross-shaped. I think it's in, in America anyway, we had the four spiritual laws, a little tract that uh, millions and millions were printed. And that's a familiar image to people of the cross is the bridge between God and man. But if you think about a bridge, you can walk across a bridge without knowing what type of wood or metal it's constructed of. You, it doesn't yes. require empirical knowledge about the bridge in order to use the bridge for its intended absolutely. purpose. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, indeed, you could take it further and say you can walk across a bridge without even being aware that you're on a bridge. Right. Yeah. You know, if, some some bridges aren't obviously bridges. Uh, right. You know, if, if the land doesn't very visibly fall away on either side, or if you can't tell you're above a river, say, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know you're on a bridge. Or, you know, you might be blind or, or deaf, or, you know, you might have some other disability uh, preventing you from knowing where you are. Keeping it with mere Christianity, I have another quote from that book here. Lewis says, there are other people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Anything you'd like to add to that quote there to, to flush out what that means? Well, um, I suppose the, the thing to add would be the fictional depiction of that very situation in uh, The Last Battle. Right. No doubt you're, you're going to come onto this, but maybe I could take us there right now. Please. Uh, the character of <coughs> MF in The Last Battle is a Calamine soldier. He's not a faithful Narnian. He doesn't worship Aslan knowingly. Uh, and yet he finds himself in the heavenly Narnia after his own death. So he appears to have been saved. Uh, he's been a follower of the Calamine religion. He's been worshipping Tash, he thinks. But he finds, to his great surprise and delight, uh, after his death, that actually all the worship he delivered to Tash has been accepted by Aslan. And for some context, the, uh, it, it's, it very much looks like Islam in, in Narnia, right? It's like they're kind of these Arab-looking characters. They use, like, scythes instead of swords. It's, it's yes. kind of, I don't think he necessarily means a one-to-one -one correlation with Islam, but that the Crusades maybe are a sort of a a pictorial template for him as he imagines the two sides in the Narnian battle. Is that, is that true? Yes. I think it's fair to say that the, the, uh, Calamines, their religion is meant to suggest something a little bit like Islam and the Muslims, but yeah, it's, it's not a f hard and fast one-to-one -one allegory. Maybe the most straightforward quote about this Tash Aslan thing. Uh, I'm going to quote this from the last battle. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, we might think of Jesus, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
It is by me, Aslan, that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man does a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name of Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. And that just makes me think of Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons, I'll say I never knew you. Others will say, we never knew you. And I'll say, anytime you cared for the least of these, you cared for me. Do you think that that's what Lewis had in mind when he wrote that passage uh, in the words of Aslan? Yes, I I think that's very likely. Uh, And I think that phrase about saying, Lord, Lord, can be can be flipped, as it were. In the, in the gospel, we, we read it in the sense, um, not all those who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are people who imagine they're Christians, but aren't, or pretend that they're Christians and aren't. Uh, but then there's, you can see it from the other side too, not all those who fail to say, Lord, Lord, will fail to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. <laughs> because... They didn't realize that the Lord that they were worshiping was, in fact, the true Lord. And that's what this passage from the last battle goes on to say. Uh, MF, this Calamine soldier, says, I, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said Aslan, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. And that's almost a direct quotation from St. Augustine. Uh, the idea being that, you know, that evil has no positive content. Evil is only a deprivation or a perversion of the good. But if you are raised in an evil religion, a false religion, but nonetheless focus on that one particular part of it, which is good, you know, which it is perverting, which it is parasitic upon, uh, then you are being drawn, though you may not realize it, to the source of all goodness, God himself. Lewis is very fond of that phrase in St. James's letter about God being the father of lights. All lights uh, that lighten us come eventually, come finally from God himself. Where else could they come from? So if you find a, a light that illumines your, your way, your conscience, your, your ability to love, uh, to serve other people, etc., etc., that light must come from God. And if you follow it, uh, faithfully, devoutly, truly, um, it's up to God what he what he does with that with that behaviour. Um, it's it's worth pointing out, by the way, that the word MF, that's the name of this Calamine soldier, is a Hebrew word meaning truth or fidelity or permanence. Uh, Lewis didn't name that character by accident. <laughs> you know that we're meant to understand that um, MF is a kind of righteous pagan. He does the best with the lights that he has been given, and God, in his mercy, uh, redirects all those arrows in magnetic mercy, uh, to quote one of Lewis's poems, so that they find their, their true target. And isn't it true that even those of us who are born into Christian homes, depending on what denomination we're born into, depending on our parents, the health of their faith, the health of their relationship, depending on... You know, so many factors out of our control uh, that just because we have Christianity or some version of Christianity, don't we all have varying version of of the lights, so to speak, that are available to us anyway? Yes, absolutely. Of, of course, uh, there's, there's a, almost an infinity of factors going on in 
everybody's lives, uh, which no single individual could possibly, even in principle, be aware of. And yeah, I mean, that's a good point that you may be raised in a Christian family, you may be raised in a Christian church. But if you have, for instance, um, you know, just to take a, a painful example, if you have, for instance, been abused by, say, a Christian pastor or priest or right. a Christian leader, uh, that may very understandably turn you against the whole thing. Uh, and you wash your hands of it and you say ever afterwards, oh, I'm not a Christian. Um, but if you go on living in a, a Christian way, even outs outside the, the visible bounds of, of your denomination, um, you may not so fully have turned your back on it as you think. Right. Or, or you, you may be raised uh, Lutheran in Norway and come of age during the Second World War and watch how both the Catholic Church and all the state, you know, Protestant churches in Germany deal with Hitler. And you may think, huh, proof's not in the pudding here. And you might have for yourself a, a very good reason to reject certain claims that the Christian church has made in, in your lifetime. Yeah, but we've got to be very careful with this, obviously, and, and not start allowing individuals to, to hide behind their own particular preferences or, or uh, prejudices. You know, we've got to hold it in tension with, with those infinite factors that we were just talking about. Uh, there's an interesting letter that Lewis wrote in 1956 to, to Dom Bede Griffiths. Griffiths was a, a Christian who bega began to be quite interested in Hinduism. Uh, and Lewis says to him, you're on dangerous ground about Hinduism, but someone must go to dangerous places. One often wonders how different the content of our faith will look when we see it in the total context. Might it be as if one were living on an infinite earth? Further knowledge would leave our map of, say, the Atlantic quite correct. But if it turned out to be the estuary of a great river, and the continent through which that river flowed turned out to be itself an island off the shores of a still greater continent, and so on, you see what I mean. Not one jot of revelation will be proved false but so many new truths might be added. That is beautiful. And I love Bede Griffiths. I've read The Golden String and I'm, I'm working through some other of his work right now. There's such a expansive beauty in that way of thinking. But why do you think some people hear that and their immediate reaction is, hold on, hold on, Dr. Ward, or hold on, Lewis. Let's, uh, let's not get carried away here. If I don't know where the lines are, how do I go through my life? What do you think motivates that? Uh, well, it, it may be motivated by a, a very proper desire to avoid obscurity and unclarity. And Lewis himself, in fact, goes on in this same letter to say, your Hindus certainly sound delightful, but what do they deny? That's always been my trouble with them, to find any proposition they would pronounce false. But truth must surely involve exclusions. Uh, so Lewis is is treading a very fine line here. He's he's wanting to be as as open to the unexpected as possible. He's wanting to be as inclusive as possible. But he's also fully aware that, you know, you can't finally include every single position, uh, because that would go against the very clear teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, that you know, there is there is a judgment and there are goats who go to the left and there are sheep who go to the right uh, in the parable. So however expansive and inclusive your theology is, it, it mustn't overwhelm that truth. 
And I think that's what lies behind the, the nervousness of some people when, when they hear these kinds of statements. And that would probably explain why Lewis breaks with his mentor, George MacDonald, right, who, who was a, a British author who espoused basically a kind of in the end universalist view that given enough time or the the type of opportunities that a loving God would give people, eventually everybody will succumb to God's unending love. And Lewis is was an inclusivist, but not a universalist. Can you talk a little bit about his decision or his thinking such that he couldn't go all the way to George MacDonald's view? Yeah, it, that is a, a, a very difficult, complicated question about George MacDonald. I, I'm no MacDonald scholar. It's interesting how George MacDonald appears in Lewis's own book, The, the Great Divorce, and MacDonald serves in that book as, a, as Lewis's guide to heaven. Lewis is a character who, who travels up to heaven from a kind of hell place and, and, and sees various people choosing whether to uh, leave behind them their their favorite sins and enter into heaven or not, as the case may be. And he has actually a quotation from George MacDonald as the epigraph to The Great Divorce, where he says, there's no escape, there's no heaven with a little of hell in it, no plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather, uh, which is <laughs> pretty exclusionary. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, you know, the whole premise of The Great Divorce is about making a painful choice. That you can't, in the end, have it both ways. You can't marry heaven and hell. The two must be divorced. That's where the, the title of the book comes from. We're going full circle. For Lewis, they can't be the same place. There does need to be a distinction. But the distinction is not necessarily the distinction that we perceive while we are on the earth of, oh, that person is a Christian, that person is a Muslim. Absolutely, yeah. And that ought to, you know, come come as no surprise to anybody who knows their Bible, because as our Lord says, judge not that ye be not judged. You know, it's not up to us to say whether anybody else is saved. It's not up to us actually even to say whether we are ourselves saved. You know, we're not our own judges. We have to be judged. We are in a passive state when it comes to our own salvation. We do not save ourselves. And, and although we can trust and believe uh, in our in, the, in our good standing before the Lord, of course, it is his determination, not our own, that saves us. So we have to retain a, an appropriate humility, even with regard to our own situation, let alone that of anybody else. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for your time. That's excellent. My, my pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast or enjoy other podcasting work that I've done in the past, if you think that it is a valuable addition to your life and the lives of your community, would you consider becoming a patron? It starts at only $5 a month, and it includes two bonus episodes for patrons only every single month. Those are episodes that do not play anywhere else, and they're really fun. It's quite a variety of topics. I really free myself up to talk with anybody interesting about any interesting question. Patrons also will be able to submit questions and topics for future episodes like that and future Q&A episodes. And of course, you get access to all the previous patron conversations that I've already had and posted on that platform. Here are a couple clips in kind of no particular order 
of little bits of those conversations. So the hiddenness of God is an assertion of God's otherness, that God is this fundamentally, there's something about God that is other to us that like we can't just figure out by using our natural reasoning or our natural observations or our it's, it's not something that we can intuit from our experience he values loyalty more than anything and loyalty is pretty amoral the guy has no moral fiber to speak of as as far as looking at his life's record i mean this goes back decades partly as a result of having had having had such like a tortured that's way too strong a word but sort of a a humorously classical version of the evangelical experience of like accepting christ 20 times as a child and, and and just finally like in college getting to the point where i'm like man if it's about like saying a prayer a certain way like i've, I've said the prayer i'm in if at that's this what point it is, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty in um, My passport has been stamped many stamped. times. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a 16-year-old fan really does want to sleep with a front man and they lie about their age. Those things happen. Those happen in the music industry. I've seen it happen. And I'm not making an attempt to victim blame or anything. It's a part of this weird part of music culture that... Unlike TV, I can watch Brad Pitt on a movie, but I'm not in a situation where Brad Pitt could ever, like, call me out of a crowd backstage. To sign up for the Patreon, go to youhavepermissionpod.com. Thanks so much. So as I said, C.S. Lewis is not the only famous inclusivist. And I am now going to be joined by Rick Steele, Dr. Rick Steele. He is the former academic dean of the Seattle Pacific Seminary, which is the seminary attached to Seattle Pacific University. Now he has been uh, reassigned his old role, which is a professor of theology and church history. Here's my talk with Rick. Many famous evangelists were inclusivists. Dwight Moody was an inclusivist. John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism, which is your school and your personal ordination's uh, denomination or branch of Christianity, and Billy Graham, right? But not only modern evangelists, but a lot of church fathers. Athanasius, Clement, Gregory of Nyssa, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, all of these early church fathers were inclusivists. To your knowledge, am I lying about any of those? To my knowledge, you are correct, and I would add, even more importantly, origin of Alexandria. Right. The, the, the difficult road to hoe is always to affirm with Christian scripture that salvation is in and through Christ without either diminishing or denying the, the, the religious value of other traditions yeah. and, and without denying that God may be operative and God's spirit is free to operate wherever God's spirit chooses to operate, including in, in and through other religions. I, I particularly like uh, a comment that was that is apparently made by Teresa, of St. Teresa of, of Calcutta, where she said, I love all religions, I'm in love with Christianity. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of nicely captures the fact that as a, as a, a Christian deeply rooted in that tradition, she can also see the, the religious legitimacy of other traditions, but at the same time can accept that something distinctive has happened to the human condition through Christ. You know, there's more we could say. The official stance of the Catholic Church is inclusivism, and of course I'm sure there are some 
practicing Catholics who don't hold that view. But if you want to go by official doctrinal statement, that makes alone more than half of worldwide Christians, at least by default, inclusivists. So we're not we're not talking about a little minority radical view here. Correct. I guess what it comes down to for me is if someone comes up to you and says Christians must believe that billions of people are going to hell because they did not accept Jesus. Rick, professor of theology, former dean of a seminary, we do not, in fact, have to believe that, right? No, we don't. Thank you. That's the main thing. Now, I want to play a clip of Billy Graham, and then I want to riff a little bit about what I saw when I was tracking down this clip of Billy Graham. Okay. So this is about a minute and a half, and this is Billy Graham very clearly enumerating an inclusivist position. Tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? Well, Christianity and being a true believer, you know, I think there's the, the, the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world, or outside the Christian groups. I think everybody that, that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping uh, revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that, the Apostle James, in the first council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people for, out of the, the world for his name whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, uh, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but uh, they know in their heart that they need something that they don't have, and they turn to the only light that they have, and I think that they are saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven. This is fantastic. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. There's a wideness. In- Rick, any reactions? I mean, have you heard that? Or were you surprised to hear that? I am surprised, and I have not heard that before. Okay. It's a um, little bit later in his career. I think he's in maybe his 60s or something. When he, But it's a while ago. This is more than a decade ago he said that. And he never recanted it, to my knowledge. Well, I, I guess I would find myself in in large agreement with uh, with Dr. Graham. I might quibble a little bit on the body of Christ. I, I think I probably have a, a somewhat higher doctrine of the church than he does. Yeah. But on the other hand, I would strongly agree the, the, the reach of the saved is more extensive than the reach of the institutional church. And in that respect, I think he's exactly right. He, there's an interesting line he used in there. He's quoting from James. God is calling a people according to his name. Here's how I understood that. I'm not familiar with that phrase. What I think he meant was just because God is building God's church does not mean that that's like the only thing that God's doing or the only th- place that God lovingly interacts with people. It just means that like we're the church and we have a job to do as the church and, and you know, and we have a function and, and the, there is something very special about the church, but it's not to the exclusion of anything else God might be doing. Is that how you took that? I, in? Would, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. I think that's, I think that's substantially what he said. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I, I'm kind of surprised by how clear of a statement that was by Billy Graham, but so the, the, 
in searching for a clip. So I, I had read that Billy Graham was an inclusivist. And, uh, of course, um, a lot of people who really liked Billy Graham stopped liking him when they found that out. And some of them posted, you know, videos. But I found this clip. The title of the YouTube clip was, all caps, WARNING. The rapture is in 2018. Are you ready? That was the name of the of the Billy Graham clip. And there is some weird corners of the internet and weird corners of YouTube dedicated to like proving that Billy Graham was actually like one of like an elaborate ruse by Satan to get uh Billy Graham into the hearts of uh believing evangelicals and then to like at the last minute turn the switch and say no, other people are saved. I hope and strongly believe that that's wrong, <laughs> that he's not, no, no, that I, he was yeah, nothing I don't, of the sort. I don't think he was. There's kind of a mathematical question yeah. that I think is interesting to talk about, which is like, we, we avoid this, but we're talking about billions of people here. If the exclusive tradition is true, exclusivist view is true. Billions condemned forever. Billions. And, and, and not because they were given the choice and said no, Right. This would be they literally never had a chance to accept Christ and that God thought it would be better to have those people alive. Now, we know it's billions now because there's seven billion people alive. But even I looked at some population for 100 A.D. Okay, so this is 70 years after Christ's resurrection. There are about 181 million people living in 100 A.D. There's no Internet. There's no airplanes. There's no cars. One million of those people are Christians. So this is, you know, the church is going, it's growing. We've got probably all four gospels. We've got all Paul's letters. And the church is minute. Half of 1% of the world's population. It seems like you've got two options. You can go full Calvin and you can say, yeah, but that's solved because God decides when and where you'll be born. And so he knows that your soul, which is already condemned to hell, is going to be born in a place where you couldn't heard the gospel anyway. So it makes no difference. You can go that route. There's other podcast episodes that will be devoted to arguing against that view. And I think if you don't go that way, what you get is, no, there's got to be another way. There's got to be some other mechanism by which people can commune with God. What, what do you think about thinking of it from a mathematical perspective like that? Uh, it seems preposterous that that God would design a world in which the stakes for every person are extremely high, but where the game is stacked against Rigged, the vast yeah. majority of them. That just right. doesn't sound like the, the nature and character of the God that's revealed in the Christian scriptures. The, the, the end game, if you want to put it that way, would certainly be conscious, explicit, professing faith. Uh, and those That's who, the ideal. That's the ideal. And yeah. those who are in the church and who live according to the teachings of Christ and live empowered by the Holy Spirit, gladly profess Christ's name, and they do so ascribing their salvation and salvation of anyone to Christ's work mediated to us through the Spirit and through the agencies of the Church. The confusion comes in when we say, well, we're saved by faith, and therefore only those people who publicly profess the right magic words, and I use the word right, yeah. uh, in, in a, an intentionally sort of blasphemous way almost, right, right. Uh, because it, it, it really does turn salvation into a piece of white magic 
to sort of say that if I don't say the right words, I'm not saved. If I don't undergo the right sacraments, if I don't belong to the right institution or whatever form of of human humanly determined qualification. Humanly determined is the big one because the the convenient thing uh, about that view is, oh, well, we can actually quantify that and we can look and we can know what's going on with someone because it's outward. Oh, you haven't been going to church. Oh, you never were baptized. Oh, you never. Oh, you don't believe you had to do this prayer. And then we have the power. Right. Not God. Right. And and therefore, there's a fundamental joyfulness about the inclusiveness, excuse me, inclusivist program because it allows God to be God. Whereas, in effect, the exclusivist position reserves for the believer the, the right to determine whether God's work is going to operate in the lives of right. of those who are outside of the of of the church or maybe even more harshly it reserves for the believer the right to say when and where god is or is not currently operating which is even kind of darker than the uh mm-hmm. there's the categorical thing but then there's the applying the categorical to the specific and then that's when you get real darkness Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got two quotes from John Wesley. I'm just going to read them back to back. Okay. And then as a Wesley scholar, just anything you want to add, feel free. So here's the first one. And these are rephrased into modern English, by the way. Oh, okay. (laughs) You're looking at me like, okay, how's this going to go? Inasmuch as to them little is given, of them little will be required. As to the ancient non-Christians and non-Israelites, millions of them, like we said earlier, likewise were aware of little. No more, therefore, will be expected of them than the living up to the light that they had. But many of them, especially in the civilized nations, we have great reason to hope, although they lived among unbelievers, were of quite another spirit and were taught by God, by his inward voice, all the essentials of true religion. And the second one is this. Perhaps there may be some well-meaning people who say, regardless of whatever change is brought about in people, whether in their hearts or lives, if they lack clear views of those central doctrines, the fall of man, justification by faith, atonement made by the death of Christ, they can have no salvation through his death. I dare not affirm this. Indeed, I do not believe it. I believe that the merciful God regards the lives and tempers of men more than their ideas. I believe God respects the goodness of the heart rather than the clearness of the head. And that if, by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, the heart of a man be filled with the humble, gentle, patient love of God and man, then God will not cast him into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, simply because his ideas are not clear or because his conceptions are confused. True, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, but I dare not add, or clear ideas. So, end quote. Powerful stuff in there, I think. Agreed. I love that word, that phrasing, I dare not, which really is theological humility before the face of the otherness of God. Something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of the background, I think, of of those comments is the fact that John Wesley spent most of his public career as an evangelist with people who didn't have the luxury of the kind of education 
that would allow them to espouse clear ideas. He was working with farmers and mm. shopkeepers and coal miners, and he could see the work of the Holy Spirit in those people, in some cases before they had accepted Christ, and certainly in many cases after they had accepted the gospel and had become part of the, the network of Methodist societies over which he presided. His religion of the heart is calculated to say that divine action is is observable in, the, in a person's emotional disposition. His term for that would have been the tempers, the holy tempers, or the the Christian affections. And this is, connects to the quest, to the quotations that you that you gave here, right? Um, that Wesley is seeing the the heart in in the in the ancient biblical sense of the center of the personality. Yeah, I was just going to say or also the Greek like Aristotelian Platonic sense, right, of of uh, the the habits, the 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 type of person one becomes with the virtues and th- that you're working toward. Yeah. yeah. And Wesley believed that a person's life might very well display the the rightness of the tempers, the heart even if uh, the person's doctrines were not all squeaky clean, according to the according to the thirty nine articles of the Church of England. He wouldn't have given much, too much uh, leeway for consciously wrong action or sinful action. He, right, he, he was right. A, he was a moralist in that sense, but he was more than a moralist precisely because he emphasized the importance of the the overall integrity of the person, which is which is displayed through one's dispositions and attitudes, not just through one's outward conduct. And which is only fully apparent to God and not to any it, other Precisely, person, exactly. Right? I do want to say one thing. I don't want the, the point of the exclusivist argument to be forgotten. Right. And oftentimes I think when, when debating, when exclusivists and inclusivists debate with each other, they tend to talk past each other because each fails to understand the, the overriding concern of the other. Interesting. And the, the overriding concern of exclusivism, as I understand it, is to insist on the, the mediatorship of Christ and any right. position that would seem to fudge on that would seem correspondingly blasphemous or or simply irreligious or um, unscriptural. And in that respect, the exclusivist is really rooted in ancient Christian convictions about the fact that Christ was not just one more good good man, not just one more great teacher, not one more inspired prophet, but was qualitatively different in being God incarnate. So far, so good. The problem with exclusivism is that in an attempt to magnify the the salvific work of Christ, it it paints the exclusivist into the into into a corner, because it fu- fundamentally means that Christ's saving work can only extend as far as the church's public proclamation. Right, and and that seems to put put handcuffs on the Holy Spirit in order to promote the, the, the salvific work of Christ. I understand your what you're saying that. The exclusivist wants to leave at the center Christ's work and God's work through Christ. I just don't understand what value there is in keeping the exclusivity 
I don't understand why you can't simply say, yeah, everybody who's saved is saved through Christ's work. And also, we don't know the whole number of who those people are. I don't understand either. Okay. I mean, I, I agree with preaching you. preaching to the choir now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree with your take on that. But from an exclusivist's standpoint, it, it's not only the salvific work of Christ, it's the public proclamation by, mm. the, by the believer of, yeah. the, of, of Christ's mediatorial work. Right. And there are texts that the exclusiveness can point to. You know, well, you so this profess is, with your words and believe in yeah. your heart. I mean, those, yeah. no other name. I mean, there are plenty of passages in the New Testament that you can point to, proof texts. But the problem is, if you argue from proof texts, there are other proof texts that that, that speak from the other direction. And if I may sort of... Uh, uh, paraphrase Wesley, the whole scope and tenor of Scripture, that's a t- phrase directly from yeah. one of his sermons, yeah. the whole scope and tenor of Scripture is in, in the direction of saying that Christ's saving work uh, is not to be shackled by human institutions, that, that therefore one cannot draw any arbitrary lines in the sand beyond which Christ's saving work cannot operate. There just aren't any such lines. Let's talk about scripture. So we were chatting before and and you said to me, the problem with using verses here or there is that uh, really the Bible is not of one voice if, on this issue if you take them out of context as proof texts. So can you go through a couple of these, these texts, these verses that people will use for one argument or the other and, and just kind of show us how you can go either way on it and so that's not – going to be the final arbiter. One of the favorite exclusivist proof texts is taken from Paul's speech in Acts 4 to the the elders of Jerusalem, where he says, this Jesus is, quote, and he's quoting scripture here, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4, 8, 11, and 12. The interesting thing about the text is that while it affirms that there's no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved, it doesn't specifically state that mortals have to have to confess that name. Right. The, the inclusivist proof text, and there are several, but the one that I you're quoting is first Timothy. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our savior who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself, human who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time for this. I was appointed a herald and an apostle. Universalists also like that text. By Universalists the way. love that text because that takes the takes the issue back to the the intention of God, which is yeah. which is what does God want, and does God get what God wants, and that exactly. kind of line of thinking. All of yeah. that, right? So there's a kind of a family resemblance between inclusivism and universalism, yeah. although it's possible to be an inclusivist without being a universalist. I've slid between yeah. the two at yeah. various points in my life. Yeah. Right, well, me too. But there, the point is that. Uh, that what God wishes is for all to come to salvation. Now, again, it's Christocentric in saying that salvation is through Christ. Yeah, it's very explicit. But the the, the hinge point is whether 
whether being saved by Christ requires that you know that you are saved by Christ and publicly affirm That's it. That's the question, yeah. The fundamental question is, what is the argument that someone needs to know what the bridge is made of as they walk across the bridge. That's the that's what the exclusivist needs to argue for. Right. And that's what I have not – no one has ever made a compelling case for me. Uh, I understand the case that it's only Christ's work. It's right. only what God has done. God created a universe of billions of galaxies. I have no problem acknowledging that it's God's work and not my own. The idea that I could save myself through my works – in this corner of the Milky Way is just insane. <laughs> what does that even mean? I might be able to make money, but I can't save myself before God. More. Like that's a that's a, to me a ridiculous claim. So what I just don't get is how where's the motivation for the exclusion part? Why does someone have to know exactly what the bridge is made of? Well, you're you're asking me to to answer on behalf of a position <laughs> yeah, I myself don't I hold, which means that I'm almost certainly going to not do it justice. As near as I can figure, and I am mystified in exactly the same way that you are on this. So, in, in that sense, we're in agreement. But if if I'm here to 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 speak on behalf of the exclusivist, there is the the honorable tradition of Christians standing up for their faith in the face of persecution. Yeah, yeah, martyrdom and stuff. Martyrdom, yeah. all that. There have been many people whose lives have been greatly animated and uh, who have been inspired with tremendous courage to face opposition precisely because they are not willing not to publicly profess their faith. And and the problem with the inclusiveness position for the exclusivist, it seems to give people the opportunity not to profess the name. If you don't need to profess the name to be saved, and if being saved is the only game in town, then why bother professing it, and then why bother proclaiming it so that other people would profess it? I guess I do understand that motivation. That's helpful. It seems profoundly contrary to the Christian virtue of love to hope for anything other than the salvation of everybody. Mm. To not be a hopeful universalist seems to be kind of petty and uh, maybe selfishly holding on to the prize to the exclusion of others. Yeah. Especially and since it's nothing we do ourselves. It's something that God right. does in us. Right. right. And that's, I mean, that's part of the, the the terrible irony of positions which take their stand on on God's sovereignty. I mean, the, uh, the those who are saved are those whom God has chosen to save. My salvation is therefore not anything that I did. It's not anything that I earned. That's the humility part of that argument. Yeah, that's the part but, that's, that draws people in, yeah. Right. But it's very hard not to take the following step which is to say, well, he must have had some reason for picking me. Or even if he had no reason for picking me, by God, he did pick me, and I'm yeah. better than those he didn't pick. And that yeah. then becomes a new form of, of othering others yeah. in a way that seems, that seems very problematic. One of my teachers uh, at seminary, George Lindbeck, made a remark in a tutorial session that I was with that has stuck in my mind and seems to me really almost to put a put the, 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 the an end to the discussion. <laughs> he said, Christian faith requires us to believe in the existence of hell. 
but Christian charity requires that we pray that it's empty. Yeah. And and what he That's meant good. by that is is something like this that we have to believe in the possibility that a person would would so stubbornly refuse to accept that divine grace is finally sovereign that he or she would consign himself or herself to eternal separation from God. And it it and that that is what hell is. I mean, quite aside from calculating the temperature of hell or the or you know the pitchforks and all the rest hell is basically that state in which in which god is alienated from absent completely absent is, is absent and it would be a violation of a person's freedom for god to to foist salvation upon a person who didn't want it uh, because the the very thing that makes a person worth saving is the, the person's capacity to make decisions affecting his or her behavior and status in the in, in the world and even in before God. So God can't coerce anybody into heaven with, without acting toward them in a way that would, in effect, violate the very thing that makes them theoretically qualified for heaven. And mm. that doesn't sound right. On the other hand, we can't want anyone not to want God. Part of what we mean by holiness is rightly ordered desires. The desire that orders all other desires rightly is the desire for eternal communion with God. And so what what Dr. Lindbeck's point was, um, is that we have to allow for the possibility that a person would choose alienation, but we can't want that for anyone because we can't conceive th- that such a person could, could endure a life of of an eternity in which the the deepest desire of the human heart is forever frustrated. And that desire is for, is for companionship. Yeah. So I want to run my argument by you. I have experienced the God of love through prayer. This is a experiential fact of my life. I have read many accounts by people of other faiths, often describing their own experiences with prayer. And I just can't believe that what they have experienced is, is like completely deceptive, right? That like they are through some demonic force, using exactly the right kind of language to fool someone like me who has experienced God into thinking that they have experienced God. That would basically be my other option. And to drive this home, I'm going to read some quotes. This is from across the spectrum. So here is Al-Ghazali, a Sufi mystic. Sufis do not throw away all things of this world, nor do they go after them with a vengeance. Rather, they know the true value and function of everything upon the earth. They save as much as is necessary. They eat as much as they need to stay healthy. They nourish their bodies and simultaneously set their hearts free. God becomes the focal point toward which their whole being leans. God becomes the object of their continual adoration and contemplation. End quote. It sounds to me like the Sermon on the Mount. It sounds beautiful. Any thoughts on that one? It, I'm not sure it sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, but it sure sounds beautiful, and it sounds as close to the words of Christ as one can come without without quoting him. Well, I guess the part of uh, worry not for the morrow, what you will wear, what you will yeah. eat, I mean, that, that's the part that fair, it reminded yeah. me of. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, I, I, get, I, I agree with that then. Okay, I'm going to mispronounce this, but this is from the 
Ojibwe peoples mm-hmm. of Canada, grandfather, look at our brokenness. We know that in all creation, only the human family has strayed from the sacred way. We know that we are the ones who are divided, and we are the ones who must come back together to walk in the sacred way. Grandfather, sacred one, teach us love, compassion, and honor that we may heal the earth and heal each other. Amen. I mean, come on. Like anyone who can get to that prayer. you, you If someone wants to tell me that it's not God they've been experiencing – Here's an, a, another Muslim mystic. I don't think he's a Sufi. Karaz died in the year 890 AD. When entering on prayer, you should come into the presence of God as you would on the day of resurrection. When a man bows in prayer, then it is fitting that he should afterwards raise himself, then bow again to make intercession until every joint of his body is directed toward the throne of God. And this means that he glorifies God most high until there was nothing in his heart greater than God most glorious. And he thinks so little of himself that he feels himself to be less than a mite of dust. Now, I don't know that I think people are less than a mite of dust. And, and I don't think that this guy is saying they have to be in a cosmic sense, but like that's honoring God. Like that, that's clearly right. a God honoring yeah. approach to prayer. Right. Here's a poet saint of Buddhism. Shantideva probably said that wrong too. Quote, may I be a balm to the sick, their healer and server until the sickness come never again. May I quench with rains of food and drink the anguish of hunger and thirst. May I be in the famine of the ages and there drink and meat. May I become an unfailing store for the poor and serve them with manifold things for their need. My own being and my pleasures, all my righteousness in the past, present, and future, I surrender indifferently that all creatures may wind through to their end. And end quote. As a Christian, you just add to their end, which is union with Christ. And you just think, let me be a part of that. Any of these things I've just read, all of these people are closer to God than I am. It sure, <laughs> it sure seems to me. Last one. This is from the New Air people in East Africa. Oh, yeah, right. First and foremost in their thought. This is about them. This is a description about them from an anthropologist. <clears throat> from an anthropologist. First and foremost in their thought is God, the spirit in the sky. He is the creator of all things, invisible and present everywhere, the sustainer and taker of life, the upholder of what is morally upright, good and true. A being with qualities of human personality, God is also and preeminently a God who loves unselfishly the human beings he has created. The Nuer are keenly aware of God's control of their lives, often uttering quiet prayers to the effect of, quote, God is present, end quote. That sounds like the Jesus prayer in Orthodox Christianity. You know, the, the prayer without ceasing, little quiet prayers throughout the day. Brother Lawrence, practice of the presence of God. I just, if these people are experiencing God, it seems so weird to me to say, and then once they die, they go to hell. That's I, just a leap I can't make. Well, on Christian principles, you don't have to make that leap. Well, that's the great thing about today's episode. <laughs> I have permission not to make that leap. Yes. I know that earlier on the on the podcast you uh were interviewing uh, Michael Ward Ward. If if I understand correctly, he made the point from the uh, the 7th of the Narnia Chronicles yeah. about a figure who whom your quotes remind me of, a figure who was arrayed against the forces of Aslan. Right. but is ultimately brought face to face with the great lion, 
and recognizes at one level that his whole life has been a sham because he has been he has been he's been on the wrong side basically. he's been on the wrong yeah. side on the wrong side because he's been devoted to to the wrong god but devoted to the wrong god in the way that would that yes. that would in in every respect bring honor and glory right. to the true god and what aslan says to him is that the, the the virtues that you have practiced in the name of this other god uh i i receive unto me um and interestingly and i think equally importantly in 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 light of our, our conversation um is that all the things that the that people who profess to be worshipers of aslan who right. do that dishonor Aslan right, and right. they don't get a free pass because they said the magic word right. or they named the, the, the name of Christ or Aslan. And or, that's straight from the sheep and the goats parable. Precisely. Tells, yeah. It's, it's not about, it's not, this is not verbal magic. Uh, this is the disposition of the heart, the conduct of the life and the, the rootage of the self uh, in in the divine. Now, an evangelical Christian of any, and I mean evangelical in the small e sense, and that would include Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox yeah. and Eastern Christians. Christians who think they ought to evangelize in some sense. Yeah. Right. Would affirm that the nature of the God that all these other peoples who, whose, whose writers you cited is in certain critical senses different from the way they understand God. God sure. is, is, is triune and so on. And so, from from the standpoint of of doctrine, uh, a Christian theologian is is going to want to assert that the God whom these folks name may not be in may not be quite what these people imagine that God to be, but the extent to which they imagine God is godly. Yeah, and then also the way I imagine God to be is certainly not exactly the way God is, and I just don't yeah, know which yeah. parts are wrong. Yeah, fair enough. I and mean, if you want it, you don't want to start playing the percentage right beliefs game. That's that's a weird one to play. Even if you want to make it well, no, well, sure, it's not percentage right beliefs, but it's just I believe Jesus died for my sins. Well, then you have a problem. There's a bunch of people in the in the New Testament who are saved without believing that. First of all, almost no one believes that. Uh, in the actual narration of the New Testament, because most of the people who are saved are saved before Christ even dies, so that doesn't seem to work as a as a final criteria. You, you just run into all these problems. Right. It seems safer to say, "Oh gosh, it's up to God." Obviously, these people are interacting with the real God, and we're going to leave it to to God's right. You know, judgment. Yeah. One of the things I sometimes tell my students when we get into the topic of of heaven and in the hereafter, we should practice in certain respects a kind of reverent agnosticism. There are some things we mm. can't know yeah. and would and are better off not speculating about because they will paint us into corners that will have consequence ethical consequences, even even devotional consequences that are going to be profoundly problematic, if not outwardly and openly sinful. So a reverent agnosticism says there are certain things we can't know, and one is the fate of those who are, are not professing Christians. But there is no harm whatsoever in hoping for the best because the ultimate issues pertaining to eternity are issues not about the what, but about the who. 
whenever you try to des- describe heaven or hell, for that matter, in detail, you're talking in the realm of poetry and metaphor yeah. and very yep. quickly falling into all kinds of, of superstition. Not that poetry is superstitious, but that – Yeah, once you try and make it into a literal description, yeah, right. 100% agree. Yeah. But what we can know is who's there waiting for us. Mm. And since the one who is waiting for us is waiting for us with open arms and has proven throughout the whole of his life and even uh, on, on the cross at his death that all are welcome to come unto him, it, it seems to me that we have good reason to hope for things which are a step beyond what we can absolutely aff- affirm as, as certain based on what God has promised, but that, that constitute a hope uh, that is based on what, what we know to be true of the God based on what he has promised and what he has displayed in the life of Christ. My last question for you, Rick, is let's say we're convinced by this. What do we do with this inclusivism? Like practically on the ground, how does this inform the way that as individuals or as church communities, we love our neighbor? Well, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is that we learn to be better listeners. Hmm. Christians are a talkative bunch not guilty. <laughs> yeah. As I interrupt you. <laughs> well, I, I not yeah, I'm guilty too. And we tend oftentimes to be readier to proclaim the message that we that we fervently believe and have good grounds for fervently believing to yeah, be interesting. true. Without however stepping into the life experience of those who are different from us and that could be in any number of ways. Right. When I am less swift to profess, um, in order to know the person to whom I am professing, I discover several things. One of the things is I discover that many people are like the folks from whom you quoted earlier, that they have a degree of godliness that grandly exceeds my own, and that therefore I have a great deal to learn from them about how to comport myself in the world. Um, I learned second that that while there are going to be differences in the way we formulate our beliefs and the way and there are definitely there will be differences in what we actually believe yeah, the, the content of the and those beliefs, yeah. that those differences shouldn't be minimized but right. nonetheless I can I can discover uh, th- things that are eminently worth respecting and honoring and and points of contact and and connection that I might not hitherto have noticed or even realized that I needed to notice because I was so busy yakking. And when I I shut up, I I create space for, for dialogue that doesn't presuppose that somebody has to win. One of the great teachers in my life, I never had him as a in class, because he was already retired, was Roland Baton, a great church historian of the 20th century, one of the greatest church historians, especially of the Reformation. And one day we were having tea in his office, and we got we got to talking like theologians do about some sub the, the Spanish Inquisition. And he said something that that I'll never forget. He said the problem with the Inquisitors was not that they didn't love the people that they burned to death but that they didn't respect them. He said they loved them because he felt they, they felt that by, by placing them in a position of great torment, they might exact a, a last-minute repentance. That would save their soul for that eternity. That would save their soul for eternity. The fact of the matter was that they burned them to death. 
and they wouldn't have burned them to death if they had sat and listened to them long enough and respected them deeply enough to look for the points of contact, to look for the things that were that were morally worthy and spiritually profound about these people. And I, I have always cherished that, and I, I think of it every time that I hear um, the Beatles song, Love is All You Need, uh, because that's exactly what the Inquisitors would have said. <laughs> said. But for, for Dr. Bainton, it was love is one of the things you need, but respect is another. And it seems to me that one of the things that an, inclusive, an inclusivist position provides more sort of moral moral motivation for is the kind of respect toward the other that is that is embodied through uh, through attention a and and a, and, a, and a desire to listen and hear and abstain from snap judgments and to trade in the assumptions about what a person's eternal destiny will be and therefore what their present life must be and if we can abstain from those kinds of of profoundly disrespectful and harmful behaviors it seems to me we've taken a step in the direction of of honoring the one whom we believe to be the savior thank you guys so much for listening the quotes I pulled from the people of other religious traditions were from Seven Theories of Religion by Daniel Pals, The World's Religions by Houston Smith, Sufism, Essential Sufism, and Prayer, A History by the Zaleskis. We have links to Rick's books and Michael's book, Planet Narnia, in the show notes. Join the Patreon at youhavepermissionpod.com. Send me an email you have permission podcast at gmail.com i really would love to hear from you what do you want to hear on those patron episodes what do you want to hear on the regular episodes be in touch be well <laughs>